0: What's up, gamers? I'm Tori Dominguez.
1: I'm Noah Hertz.
0: And welcome to Press Start.
1: It's the podcast for... I <laughs> I didn't think of anything funny to put here, so uh, welcome to Press Start.
0: Amazing. So what's going on in the, the world of games, Noah? What did I miss while well, I was uh, in Denver, legally ascending?
1: You were in Denver. You were hiking. You were legally doing drugs, and I was down here in the <laughs> I was down here in the video game news mines, trying to mine out the most interesting things happening. First story I want to lead with: apparently, there is a Fallout TV show in the works, like Fallout based on the video games. What are? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, before our initial thoughts, I will add: it sounds like the showrunners are going to be. There's one person who was a co-writer for the screenplay on uh, captain marvel the marvel movie and the other showrunner is a person who wrote for portlandia in silicon valley it is an amazon prime show it's being held by the same studio that did westworld and apparently bethesda's todd howard and one of the guys from microsoft are on board as producers of the show so what are our thoughts
0: I'm, I want to say, because it feels like too soon, um, because I did kind of get burned with the live-action Cowboy Bebop. I was like, wow, the trailer looks just like the anime, the opening. Okay. But I am kind of impressed. Like, they did seem to get some good writers. I love Portlandia. My fiancé was a huge fan of Silicon Valley. Um, And the fact that some people from Bethesda are producers is pretty great. I also think, and this might just be like a weird take, I do think that the aesthetic of Fallout is, and just the general world of Fallout, is probably easier to emulate and translate into a TV adaptation than like the worlds of other games. Like I think a Fallout TV show is easier to make good than like, God forbid, like a Zelda TV show or something like that. So
1: I never watched any, any uh, Silicon Valley. Is it? Is it like serious but also kind of funny? That's kind of the vibe I got from the trailers I saw of it I guess
0: um I there's only a couple of episodes I remember. I remember uh, a jokey episode about a Christian software dev and how he had like a Christian website and everyone kept making fun of him for it <laughs> um but. Yeah, it seemed like it was pretty funny, but then sometimes serious. There was more plot driven episodes, about like where the startup was going, and like at one point it was in like some guy's house, and then you know relationships come and go, and and things like that. So I think you're probably right on that. But again, I only this is one of those shows that I only watched when my fiance and I started dating, and this is like, uh, <laughs> do you ever say you like a show really just to yeah to get with the person? Okay, yeah, this absolutely. Is... <laughs> Silicon Valley was that for me for a little bit. It's kind of how some girls are like, I love uh, Infinite Jest, and no, you're not. (laughs) We all know what you're after. I love that. Silicon Valley was that for me. But it actually was a decent show. I wouldn't mind you watching it.
1: My thoughts on this are that uh, I think Fallout, at least in recent years, I don't have a whole lot of experience with Fallout pre-Bethesda buying it. And I know Fallout diehards will say that everything post the Bethesda buyout of Zenimax is when the stories kind of fell apart for for people who really only played like Fallout 4 or Fallout 3 the the series existed as like pretty serious but also goofy and silly strategy games on the PC as Fallout 1, Fallout 2 and then a couple of spin-off games in the 90s mm-hmm. and early 2000s and then Zenimax Media the company that made them was purchased by Bethesda, Todd Howard's Bethesda. And since then, so that's Fallout Three, Fallout Four, and then Fallout New Vegas was a weird spin off that was made by the folks at Obsidian who then went on to make um whatchamacallit? Outer Worlds. The one that's yes. like basically Fallout. Yeah.
0: Space Fallout.
1: Space Fallout, yeah. I've heard people complain that every Fallout game since the Bethesda buyout has had like Not near as much fun stuff as the old ones did, and that's why people like New Vegas so much because it does a better balance of the serious stuff with the goofy stuff. But I think that's where it could potentially shine. Like, the stuff I enjoy in Fallout is like when you're playing New Vegas and you walk into a town, and a robot walks up to you, and he's got like a smiley face in the middle of his chest, and he's like talking about weird post apocalyptic stuff. Like, that's the kind of stuff I enjoy in Fallout. I think if it if it leans too much into the seriousness of it, it yeah. starts to ring a little hollow for me.
0: I, my main question to me would be, like, is the story based on one game in particular or all the games? Because as much as I did not really enjoy Fallout 4, I do feel like the story of Fallout 4 is kind of TV watchable, especially if you follow the main plot line of your character trying to find your son and what happened to, you know after getting locked in the chamber after your spouse got murdered. Yeah. Um, I feel like that can be made into a pretty uh, narrative arc for a TV show, even though that's, like, the most hated, or at least one of the most hated, Fallout games, ironically enough. Yeah. Um, I just think it's a a series that, like, with just a, a little bit of effort, you could actually make something decent out of it that fans would enjoy. It wouldn't even have to be, like, amazing. It doesn't have to be an Emmy Award winner, but I think if you just have the right... The right balance, the right sauce, I think it could do really well.
1: They could really use some goodwill after the, the debacle that was Fallout 76, so.
0: Oof. <laughs> <laughs> Oof.
1: Did you ever play that? I still never played that.
0: I was so excited when that came out because there are parts of that game that take place in the area where I lived as a child,
1: mm-hmm. near
0: like the Shenandoah River and Harper's Ferry, which is where West Virginia, Virginia, and Maryland intersect. Uh, about an hour outside of DC it's like in my opinion one of the most beautiful places in the world mm-hmm. but and like there is just it's just really beautiful it had the hills and the water and the trees and then the game essentially had no story until like a year or two ago yeah. so there's that um I don't like that idea <laughs>
1: <laughs> my fallout 76 experience is that when I was living with roommates in college one of my roommates who's no longer my roommate but we're still very close friends is like a fallout diehard like really into the series and so Mm -hmm. was like really really excited for fallout 76 bought it like day two or three that it was out and i gave them so much shit for it because i was like dude this game is gonna be like 30 bucks in two weeks like you did not need to shell out 60 bucks for it and she she was like just let me have fun just let me enjoy this um and then she convinced my other room one of my other roommates to also buy it so the two of them could play together and so he he got it on sale though and it because it went on sale like two weeks later um and so i remember i was sitting in the living room with the two of them and they were both trying to get their characters set up and my my roommate who got his arm twisted into buying it was in the character creation screen and these games the fallout series everything bethesda touches famously Mm -hmm. known for being glitchy as fuck fallout 76 especially so because it was an online game built in an engine that was not meant for online games so my roommate is like making his character in the character creator and he's just like talking to us just like haha i'm making my character and then another voice starts coming out of his computer and they're like yeah man i'm working in the character creator too and apparently apparently what (laughs) because of the way the game is built the character creation screen was like in the game it wasn't like a separate thing it was like public <laughs> and so he didn't know he had his fucking microphone on and it's just talking and there's another person in this lobby with him who's just like hey man how's it going it's like i didn't i didn't sign up to just be talking to somebody during character creation
0: you're trying to create a female character and people just start screaming slurs at you
1: people are out here like awooga <laughs> you're trying to make <laughs> no! a female character
0: <laughs> Oh, that's so bad. Also, the idea of your roommate trying to rope other people into playing way too much money for a shitty game is like yeah. the video game version of an MLM. Hey, girly, <laughs> I know we haven't talked in a long time, but how about you play... I have an exciting online gaming opportunity for you.
1: I see it too as like the, the gaming equivalent of like when a friend watches a really shitty movie and then is like, you've got to see this, except it's oh. not like... Except it's not, like, sit down in front of the TV. It's, like, you have to pay money to purchase this game on your Steam account so that the two of us can experience this.
0: Oh, Lord.
1: I got another another piece of news for you. There's not too much to this. It's it's verging on leak content, but...
0: Small if true.
1: Yeah, this is, like, small if true, because it's really not crazy consequential. But uh, industry insider Jeff Grubb, who's, like an indie game dev who also like has become somewhat prominent online for having a loud mouth and just occasionally being like, "Yeah, I heard there's going to be a Nintendo Direct next week." And it's like, "What the hell are you talking about?" And then there'll be a Nintendo Direct. So he's got some cred as far as stuff goes. He says that one of the games that we talked about a couple weeks ago for our Game of the Year 2021 stuff, Jedi Fallen Order, the Star Wars Dark Souls game, a sequel is not only in the works, which is something we've known for a minute, but it could be shown off, like, really soon. Like, sooner than E3 soon. So I think the buzz is that we might get some kind of an announcement trailer for that game come E3 time. Or not E3 time, come, uh, come Star Wars Day time, because May 4th is a big day for, like, Disney shareholders, for them to be like, check out all the cool stuff people are going to buy. Um, again, for people who didn't listen to the last episode, I'm kind of a slut for Star Wars content. I I'm not proud of it, but I really enjoyed the first Jedi Fallen Order and I will probably pay the second one because it's like the perfect intersection of things I like, which is like Star Wars content that doesn't involve characters that are particularly meaningful to the story and Dark Souls combat. So
0: Yeah, you love you love the deep Star Wars lore that was dreamt up three months ago.
1: I absolutely do. I'm so so here this is, for that. This kind is of for
0: stuff. those people for the for the tangential Star Wars lore lovers out there.
1: And yeah, I, I also am a sucker for anything that kind of steals the Dark Souls content or the Dark yeah. Souls like vibe. I just think that combat is really really good. Remind me, you said that Jesse played this game and you just kind of watched him, right?
0: Yeah, and my mom also played it and I also what? watched her. I keep yeah. forgetting
1: that your mom like games for real. I love that.
0: I know, and she she's been loving Star Wars since it came out. She saw it in the theaters, like in the '70s when it came out at a drive-in, which is like the most Aww. '70s thing ever. That
1: rules. Did your mom like this game?
0: Yes, she yeah. loved this game. She really enjoyed it, so I think she would be excited for the sequel. Damn. When you mentioned uh, new stuff about this game coming out, you said before E3. I just wanted to pause there and pour out one for E3 and what it used to be. <laughs> I know that wasn't part of our original plan for this episode, but in in recent news, E3, (laughs) that bitch dead. Yeah. (laughs) She dead.
1: It is pretty amusing to me, too, that the, the ESA, the board that kind of conducts all of the E3 business, kind of cited COVID concerns as the reason for shuttering it. And then a bunch of games journalists kind of came out of the woodwork and they were like, no, this is absolutely not the reason. Because E3 has been hemorrhaging money, and it has been hemorrhaging goodwill among people ever since. You remember there was a there was a website hack of the E3 servers, and it turned out that the ESA was just like storing information about journalists in an in like an unsecure place on their server. So um, a a single hack was just doxed a shit ton of games journalists because they were using an unsecure part of their web server to be like, this is John Smith's name, this is John Smith's phone number, this is where he lives, and all the information we need for his contact stuff. So
0: That's terrifying. Um, Holy shit, that's really bad. (laughs) Wow, that's actually worse than I thought it would be. I was just wanting to make fun of E3 because I was like, no one wants to be part of E3 anymore, everyone has their own thing now um and E3 really really just did a number to itself during the pandemic but that's even worse
1: talk to me did you did were you like a habitual watcher of E3 when you were growing up
0: yes I used to watch it on I used to like watch it if it was live on YouTube I feel I feel like at one point G4 do you remember G4
1: I definitely watched E3 on G4 yeah
0: yeah. ninja warrior um yeah. i also watched e3 on there as a kid and it just i remember um seeing some of the first trailers of like breath of the wild and its sequel and other like really exciting games uh unveiled there so yeah it's a special place in my heart and also as a reporter i like low-key hope that maybe i would get the excuse to attend e3 um, I was actually at my old job, I joined a Slack channel for, like, people at my work who, I, I was working at NPR at the time, who enjoyed games, and I was like, Does, do any of us want to, like, get together and hop on a Zoom and watch E3 in the middle of work today? And it was full of, like, 40-something grizzled journalists who were like, I covered E3 once before you were born. It's not what it used <laughs> to be. And I was like, okay. Uh- <laughs> so yeah it's i have i used to love it and it's just a shell of what it used to be
1: it's really interesting just in our lifetimes to have seen the collapse of these consumer electronics shows where they used to be the moment for game developers and for publishers and for electronics companies to really get out there and it was like their one opportunity To have fans, to have reporters, to have everybody in the room so they could show all their stuff off. They could Mm -hmm. skyrocket their stocks, and Nintendo could be like, check out the GameCube. This is what's going to be on the GameCube. But the internet has done so much to decentralize that. And I know a lot of people blame Nintendo because, well, not for the decentralization of the internet, but like Nintendo, they blame Nintendo for the downfall of E3 (laughs) because. Nintendo has not had a live presence at E3 in several years now because they just switched to that format of pre-recording a Nintendo Direct and then broadcasting it at the same time that everybody else was doing their E3 showcases. And man, I for anybody that never watched Nintendo's live presences at E3, there it was there was something really magical about it. Like yeah. in the in a in the most magical way that like an electronics company showing off the latest products they have can be but it was always, there was something so, I can't think of a term other than, like, childlike wonder associated with Nintendo's presentations. It was. Because, like, you remember, like, when they showed off Skyward Sword and they brought out Eiji Enuma, the director of the game, and he had, yes. like, he had like the sword and the shield, and he was like, I made, I've been making these games since the 80s, and I love this so much. And, like, there was just so much, like, fun associated with it. Yes. Granted, there was also the other companies that were doing, like the toxic masculinity flip side of whatever nintendo was doing and that was yeah. always really awkward but i don't know if for nintendo's life presence enough that was always my favorite part of watching this
0: i agree and i i still do look forward to nintendo directs and stuff but there definitely was some spontaneity there i, I remember their promotions when the wii first came out um and it just it just hit different back then so we we talked about something that was small if true can you tell me what is big if true?
1: I got something that's really enormous if true. We we briefly got onto the topic of Nintendo, so here's an excellent segue. Another video games industry insider person who apparently has some degree of cred. Person's name is Sircon Toto. I don't really know anything about this person's other predictions, but people who people who tend to take stuff seriously only if it is some degree of real have started taking this seriously and Circon Toto says that Mario Kart 9 is in development we're gonna see it real soon which these kind of feel obvious Mario Kart is one of those franchises like a Mario platformer that like you imagine Nintendo kind of always has on the back burner because they sell so well and also it dawned on me when I saw a tweet about it that Mario Kart 8 even though like the switch version of it is a re-upped version of the original mario kart 8 came out 10 years ago like the version of mario kart that we are all playing came out a decade ago so they are they are well past time to release a new one
0: holy shit i didn't think about that so from my understanding aren't Mario Kart games usually like once per console generation. So would a Mario Kart a Mario Kart 9 potentially mean a new console? Question mark. Similar to Zelda titles, Mario Kart was also a bundle with the Switch when it first came out.
1: Now that you mention it, I I can't think of a Nintendo console that has two Mario Kart games on it. So that is an interesting and you could make the argument that 8 Deluxe is not technically a Switch Mario Kart game because it is just a spruced up version of the Wii U game with mm-hmm. all the DLC added in. But yeah, that is an interesting angle that I haven't seen a lot of people consider that maybe this is Nintendo like really prepping for the Switch 2 or the Switch Pro or whatever. The big wrinkle in all of this is that the industry insider claiming all of this says that there is some kind of big twist with quotation marks around big twist in with this new Mario Kart game. I don't really know what that could be, but I've seen a lot of people gravitate towards the idea that this may be the opportunity to fill the void that the Smash franchise has left, and we might be getting a Mario Kart game with that kind of a twist.
0: I have three predictions for the big twist. Tell me. Big twist number one, NFTs.
1: (laughs) That's the worst one. I hate that.
0: Big twist number two, Chris Pratt voices Mario in a new Mario Kart game.
1: That's pretty good, actually. I think that could be possible, but, like, what if Chris Pratt Mario is just, like, a separate racer? So there's, like, normal Mario, and, like, baby Mario.
0: (laughs) Dr. Mario. Yeah, and
1: then there's, like... Chris Pratt Mario. Mario, and then in parentheses, Chris Pratt.
0: (laughs) Third big twist prediction. microtransactions.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You're like, that's unfortunately the most realistic one.
1: Yeah, I i kind of think i would hope that we are past that part at least i think more likely than a microtransaction mario kart game is a live service mario kart game that is kind of like have you played the mario kart phone game at all i've not touched it
0: i have not but my little cousin has a mario kart home circuit which is kind of like ar and okay that's cheap. cool it's like do you know what i'm talking about yeah i've seen those yeah. He has that, and honestly, i it's embarrassing to be jealous of a five-year-old, but I'm a little jealous of a five-year-old.
1: That's cool as hell. But the <laughs> the phone game, Mario Kart Tour, I know is one of those ones that has been receiving updates over time, where they'll just like hmm. go three months at a time and then release a new character. I can totally see Mario Kart 9 being the type of thing that's like, It releases at the end of the Switch's lifespan and the beginning of the next console's lifespan, and then it receives more periodic updates than 8 Deluxe ever got. And maybe they're paid, maybe you have to buy like a season pass, or something like that, but I would not be surprised if this is how Nintendo ventures into like a live service type thing.
0: I could tell it's that happening. Honestly, I'm excited for a new Mario Kart. I love Mario Kart. I rip-ass a Mario Kart. I am famously terrible at Smash. <laughs> it is the one-party game. I'm always confused at Mario Party. I have no, no idea what the hell I'm doing whenever mm-hmm. we play Mario Party. I'm like, oh, we're in a cake now. Uh, um, but Mario Kart 9, Mario Kart, Mario Kart and just specifically, is the one game that I'm extremely confident in.
1: So you, I'm
0: very excited for that.
1: Would you like to see a Mario Kart game that is like a Nintendo cart or that kind of a thing, where it strays away from Mario characters and is like, it opens up to a broader set of characters.
0: Hell yeah, why not? I mean, I, I wouldn't mind racing as, as Falco or something. Like, I'm, I'm down. Or any 12 characters from Fire Emblem.
1: I, I've seen, like, ever since this is something that started being postulated by people of, like, a Smash cart or a Nintendo cart, I've seen, like, broadly people excited for that. But I saw a single tweet that was like, "Oh great, it's gonna be a smash cart. It's just gonna be the the main character of a bunch of different franchises." I was like, "In what universe is that bad?" Like, I struggle. That sounds
0: like a good thing to me personally. Yeah,
1: I struggle to imagine why it would be bad that I can like race as Fox. Like, why not? Even if it's just Fox. I struggle to see how that's a bad thing. Why
0: not? I think I should. I, I mean, did Kirby not have a racing game for the GameCube? Throw him in there.
1: Man, that game was good. Speaking
0: of Kirby, did you see the Kirby Forgotten Land trailer? I it's, did.
1: It looks it's really cute. good. It looks really Super good.
0: Super cute. Um, It's giving me Mario Odyssey vibes. I love seeing the scenes where he, like, you know, absorbs the abilities of other people like there's a classic one where he wears a link hat and a sword and it's just adorable and i'm excited for it and that's all i have to say
1: do you see he has a gun
0: that's terrifying that's that's like the meme with like the kirby (laughs) with a knife standing outside the door
1: (laughs) one of the one of the transformations he had was like he sucked something up and then he had like an old-timey blunderbuss and it was firing like very comical looking bullets but Kirby with a gun. Kirby with a Glock. Give Kirby a Glock. That's that's the transformation I want in the next game.
0: I'm giving Kirby an assault rifle. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. And other...
1: Very, yeah, very unrelated to Kirby.
0: Extremely unrelated to Kirby. Extremely not wholesome and not cute. Uh, I'm just going to give a little content warning at the start of this because I am going to talk quite a bit about um claims of sexual assaults. But in other gaming news, unfortunate gaming news, uh, or actually kind of fortunate, Capcom permanently banned a rapist from their tournaments. Uh so it was a pretty well known, at least in Brazil and Latin America, Street Fighter player. His name is Robinho. His name is actually Robson Oliveira. Hopefully I'm getting that right. Portuguese is close enough to Spanish. I feel like I can do it. After he did a stream of himself playing, he basically bragged about organizing the gang rape of an ex-girlfriend. Um, which is pretty horrific, honestly. It's just, it was, I was watching, uh, a YouTube, not YouTube, sorry. I was looking at a tweet of it, and someone basically translated what he was saying from Portuguese to English, and it was honestly, like, really appalling, appallingly terrible. Um, not only that he would do that, but he would go on Twitch and, like, brag about it. Uh, it's pretty disgusting, and Capcom has just permanently banned him from their tournaments. He got booted off his esports team and i as terrible as it is uh i am really glad to see people like that getting banned um i'm glad that people stood up and were like hey that's fucked up why would you why would you brag about that why would you do that and it's not frame it's just like a, oh he's just joking like a boys being boys thing yeah. so i think this might lead us into a situation where where game publishers actually realize that their platform is theirs and they can moderate however they say fit and um yeah just like get this horrible shit off their platform
1: i think a lot of times game publishers take a very hands-off approach to competitive scenes that surround their games i i speak especially for like nintendo as a company that completely ignores the professional melee tournament scene that just kind of happens underground except for the occasional copyright strike on preventing a tournament from being streamed or something like that and i yeah i think broadly that has been the only real acknowledgement of a lot of stuff from a lot of these companies um i can't speak uh definitively on that because i don't really pay attention to too much of the competitive fighting game scene but it's it's nice like you said to see a company flex what power it has to do something good on its platform rather than just you know dmca claiming youtube videos of tournaments and that kind of stuff
0: yeah just a cease and desist for a bunch of people who wanted to play a 20 year old game modded to be online exactly Um...
1: especially since i know i've i've read plenty of articles about abuse in like the melee scene and Oh, it's bad.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And like I know we we talk regularly about how games tends to be a boys club, and I think competitive games, especially fighting games, tend to be even more so a boys club than video games more broadly. So it is it sucks that this kind of stuff happens in those spaces, but I really hope this sets a precedent for companies and
0: publishers being less hands-off when it comes to that kind of stuff. But another ver- another thing I saw, and I think you mentioned this to me, was like one of the executives at Xbox, Phil Spencer, I believe that was his name. Yep, was talking about how you know Xbox's platform is not necessarily a you know a social media platform where all sorts of speech have to be allowed. It's not. He's like, this is a this is a video game platform. It's not like a soapbox of free speech. Like if you guys are trying to organize or say fucked up things on here. Or, you know, come up with groups that do offensive things. We can just take you down. Like, we're not, uh, you know, a town square. And we don't have to act like a Times Square.
1: All right, Noah from a couple of days in the future here during the editing process to pop in and say that this next segment, which features us speaking favorably about Phil Spencer and some of the folks over at Microsoft, was recorded. 12 hours before the news broke that Microsoft had purchased Activision Blizzard to the tune of $70 billion and not done anything to handle the folks at the top who had not really done anything about the horrific stuff that has been coming out from Activision Blizzard. So let it be known, had this been recorded after that acquisition, the tenor of some of the things said might be a little different, but we felt it necessary to kind of go back and say something. So all right, go back to listen to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Take care. That was like a really excellent segue too because one of the things I had wanted to talk about was in an, in another Phil Spencer interview shortly after that Phil Spencer interview where he talked about not tolerating hate speech on their platforms. He talked about how he has been remiss to come up with ways and maybe he is alone in this given the way the trend is going to incorporate blockchain and crypto affiliated tech with Xbox and into that ecosystem in a recent interview with PC Gamer Phil Spencer said he was interested in the potential to use the blockchain to prevent people from using their service like to to permaban people not just like on your Xbox one or in your account but to permaban you forever from Microsoft Like, to target you and to go, this is logged in the permanence of the blockchain because you did really bad shit and you will never be able to use our stuff anymore. And I saw some reactions to that were a little like, "Whoa, I'm not sure I want to carry this around with me for the rest of my life. But, like, if you do something egregious enough, I think it's very reasonable within their power to be like, we don't want you in our in the space that we have created like you said we're not a public forum we don't want you here
0: yeah that's interesting it kind of reminds me of kind of the permanent stamp uh that sex offenders registered sex offenders have yeah and how that affects you know things like employment housing and things like that the one issue i would have with it is like if you're a user and you go on xbox on a game and you say some like horrible racist stuff you get permabanned because you just not create a new account with a new email
1: yeah yeah
0: you know what I mean? Also tracking IP addresses to consoles and just, like, banning the whole freaking console. I don't really know how uh, effective that'll be in the long term, uh, but we'll see. It's, it's definitely an interesting change, and I hope that, for the most part, it's positive for uh, the culture.
1: Have you ever cyberbullied anyone?
0: No, but I've been cyberbullied. <laughs> I was cyberbullied by my hi- uh, my senior homecoming date.
1: What the fuck? Like, pre-date, post-date? How did
0: that... Um, pre-date. I liked him. He had just broken up with his girlfriend, so Mm. I decided to slide, and I asked him to homecoming just as friends. Uh, Because that's how I roll. And he said yes, and we were really happy, or I was really happy, and I went to Instagram, and I found his his Finsta, or his spam account, if y'all remember what those were. Those were... Anonymous, but not really anonymous, Instagram accounts where teenagers vented, and he uh, uploaded a picture of Sanic and said, I can't believe I'm going on a homecoming date with the person I'm going to. It's a hit to my dignity, and I can't believe people are going to see me with her.
1: That's horrible.
0: Set to Sanic, of all things. Sanic. Picture of Sanic, uh, captioned with me being cyberbullied, so...
1: I'll drop a link to a picture of Sanic in the show notes so people know what Sanic looks like. <laughs> I uh I only cyberbullied anybody once. I was playing Did you ever play uh <laughs> It was justified though, I promise. Let me tell the story. Um Did you ever play Gary's mod on PC?
0: Oh my god, I've heard of that game, but no, I did not play it.
1: So it was a game on Steam that was built in the same engine that like Half-Life 2 and the other source engine games were built in. But it was it was like a platform in and of itself. I think the closest analogue to it nowadays is probably like Roblox because people would people would make games in Gary's Mod and they would be individual servers. So like you would open up Gary's Mod and you could go play in like a sandbox, but you could also just connect immediately to online through Steam. And there were just countless servers of custom games people had made with the framework that was built into Gary's Mod. So it's
0: literally Roblox. Yeah. Yeah,
1: except it attracted like like 20 something and older teenage men who wanted to be toxic on the internet so sit, make of that what mm. you will but one of the games I really liked in Gary's mod was called um, it was called Trouble in Terrorist Town and it was basically like mafia but oh, with no. guns so it was like a hidden identity type thing so it was like you would spawn into a level and you would either be a terrorist or a civilian oh wait now that I think about it it's kind of just among us before among us huh because you would have like terrorists would have access to a suite of tools and weapons that non-terrorists would not have kind of like can't you can't you access special stuff when you're the when you're the imposter in among us i've played among us like twice
0: (laughs) yeah i believe so um
1: so i was playing one time this was like i got really into this in like high school and then i dropped out of it for a while and then i re-downloaded it once in college because i wanted to see if it was still fun so I drop, I drop into a server and I'm playing Trouble in Terrorist Town. And it was like a pretty good server. It was one that I had used to play on in high school. And I was like, it had a good infrastructure. It wasn't filled with like ads and shit because people would typically just load stuff with ads to make money on ad revenue on the side. But I jump into a game and there's a guy in the game whose name was, he was named after a Nazi general. I don't remember which Nazi general. But he was named oh, after, no. like, like, one of the recognizable Nazi generals. And his profile picture was of said Nazi general. As I get in. I'm Jewish. I was like, I wonder how irritating I can make this game for this guy. So <laughs> one,
0: of the, <laughs> one of the things This that is, is good cyberbullying. That's
1: kind of how I see it. It's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like the Punch Nazis equivalent of cyberbullying. I, like, I jumped into the game, and something that is strictly banned in Trouble in Terrorist Town servers is what they call RDMing, which is random It's random death something. So it's like randomly killing people without having any reason to do it. So like if you're playing, mm. and if I'm playing, and I'm a terrorist, but I think somebody shoots me arbitrarily, I can contest it within the server and go, I think that was an RDM, and that other player might get some kind of, like, hit on their account like a demerit and with enough demerits you can get banned so i just start rdming this guy because i'm like why not i'm just gonna piss him off and so he starts filing like (laughs) insurance claims against me (laughs) and so there was a mod online and the mod was like hey you have to quit killing this guy and i was like but i think he's the imposter and they were like you can't possibly think he's the imposter you killed him three seconds into the round and i was like but he's a nazi or at least cosplaying is one, and I'm a Jew, and I feel uncomfortable. Therefore, I think he's probably the imposter, and so I got perma banned from the server. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I remember I re-downloaded Gary's mod like six months to a year later because I was just so curious, and I was still banned from the server. Like they completely perma banned my Steam account. So. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah, it was that's, pretty funny though. I got a good laugh at it. That's
0: really funny. That is that's positive cyberbullying. <laughs> wow. Mine was just sad. Yours is really funny. <laughs>
1: it's, uh, I'm
0: always always taking L's over here.
1: In all things there are there are positives and negatives. So uh yeah. Do you want to talk about what we're playing now that we've gone completely off the rails?
0: <laughs> sure. Um so while I was uh in Colorado visiting friends and family I uh, a lot of us in our friend group are really into board games and card games, and so I played three card games in particular. I'm a big fan of. One is called Anomia. Anomia is the word for not remembering the word for something. Um, and so basically, you get a bunch of cards. You show your card, and your your card has a usually some sort of uh, category. They have to name something that fits in that category. So like, a uh, actor. Uh, Fruit, and you have to be like, uh, I don't know, Ben Affleck, banana. Yeah. Um, and in the middle of each card is a symbol, like a little squiggly or a, a yellow diamond. And so you have to draw a card, and then if anyone else in the table has a card with the same syllable, you have to name the thing that their card describes. So, like, if I have a yellow diamond card, and you have a yellow diamond card, and yours says actor, I have to say Ben Affleck before yours, before you look at my card. It says fruit, and says banana. Huh. That makes sense. So it's a lot of like oh, the, uh, 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 like uh, like just trying to like uh, name the thing, and it, it it's really hard. Uh, I was just doing a, i was making a lot of weird noises trying to remember the words for things, um, and it was really unfair because sometimes there was like cards where one thing could technically fit into two categories. Like there was one that was like fashion designer, and the other was like actress, and so one person just kept screaming Tyra Banks. <laughs> it's not fair. I mean it's Tyra Banks, smart Banks, Tyra Banks, Tyra Banks. <laughs> and like, yeah, they got both cards because it's technically correct, but it just didn't feel right.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and then one called Snake Oil, where uh one person is a occupation. There's occupation cards, teacher, soldier, uh you know, whatever, doctor, and everyone else has snake oil cards and they are like two cards. it's yeah, just like two cards are like noun and adjective usually. So, like, the fast snake, and it's actually, you market that as a product for, to convince the person who has the occupation card to buy it. And you'd be like, the fast snake is great for doctors. <laughs> it makes their surgeries go faster, or like some weird thing. Um, so you're, like, trying to convince them to buy your junk product. And then another game called Love Letter, which I can't even explain, but it is a game of, like, trying to guess who has what card. Hmm. And uh, it kind of boils down to the end of who has, who is left and who has the highest value card. So, Okay. Yeah. So yeah, this is the card games I've been playing. Um, and yeah, I've been having a great time with them. Lots of, lots of replayable value with them. I love playing them with at least six people, like a full house. And it's just a great time. I, I particularly love Love Letter for its element of betrayal. Um, There is a certain level of dishonesty allowed. If uh, people try to guess what you are, you could be like, no, and actually have a thing that they think you have. So it's always fun being coy and having like the most powerful car in the game and being like, actually, I don't. Hmm." Uh, So I just just got a, a really big kick out of that.
1: I'm glad that you brought some stuff to the table that was not strictly video games because that's like totally stuff I want to explore more because so many video game mechanics are like built out of stuff that originated in tabletop gaming spaces. And so I think it's really hard to You can't really draw a hard line between video games and tabletop games they share so much dna so i'm absolutely up for bringing more stuff like that to this in the future
0: yeah it's interesting the card game subculture slash tabletop subculture like intersects with other subcultures and so our friends who we were staying with in denver are like hardcore hikers like they hiked the entire appalachian trail damn um they basically backpacked along the east coast of the united states for like uh let's see from february to august of this year um and like that type of hiker backpacker thing it's like a it's like its own subculture and like jesse is i want to say as part of that but like he has had you know aspirations of hiking uh trails that long and he's like kind of low-key part of that community and i didn't realize that, like the hiker community and the outdoorsy community really like tabletop games and card <laughs> games weird intersection but i guess it's something quick and small you could pack with you and you could play with whoever is at the same hostel as you that night um uh, and so yep yeah, that's how i got into them and then as for video games i've still been chugging along with smt god that's a long ass game as any of those types of games are, they are just very long. I don't think I'll be done anytime soon, but I am really enjoying the combat system. I am getting to a point where I'm unlocking a lot of miracles. These are abilities that affect like your demon-infusing abilities, your magic abilities, and definitely getting very powerful and mm. interested by the story. So that's where I am with that right now. And then I started playing uh, Super Mario 3D World slash Bowser's Fury mm. um, last week. I got more into that. We are farther along. My fiance and I are playing uh, co op in the Super Mario 3D World portion. And then Bowser's Fury, we heard was two player, but it's like two player in the worst way possible. Mm-hmm. It is like, did you ever play Super Mario Odyssey? Yeah, I did. Okay, so you can technically play with two players where player two plays as Cappy, like the hat that you throw. Huh. It's like really inconsequential and sad. So this game, you can play as Mario or Bowser Jr. You do team up with Bowser Jr. in this game, okay. which is interesting. But Bowser Jr.'s entire job as Player 2 is just to fly around, and it can't move anywhere off the screen, because Mario's the primary player, so it just gets lured back to the center of the screen. Bowser Jr. as Player 2 feels like the Player 2 you would give your little sibling so they <laughs> feel like they're playing, but they're not actually playing. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? I kept trying to fly around to like collect stars and shit and it like wouldn't let me because I was off the screen from where Mario was. And I was oh like, damn God. it.
1: Yeah, did it you ever play the Galaxy games? Yes. Yeah, you remember how Mario Galaxy was like also technically two player, but player 1 played as Mario and player 2 played as an additional cursor on the screen to collect star bits. <laughs>
0: Literally, bro, any any Mario game that isn't like the side scrolling ones loves to claim to be technically two players, but it's like two players with the biggest caveat.
1: Yeah. I I think it probably is built at least partially with the your little sibling is gonna see you playing this and think it looks really cool, so you can give them another controller so that they're technically involved type beat.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, it's still fun single-player mode, and Super Mario 3D World is certainly fun with four characters. Uh, I'm really enjoying Princess Peach because she kind of flies across the screen. She kind of uses her skirt as an umbrella. There's also a lot of cat content in this game. There's a transformation where you can become a cat, and Mario looks like he's wearing a fursuit, um, and Mm -hmm. he says meow with an Italian accent. He goes, Meow! Um, so, yeah, I've been enjoying that. What have you been playing?
1: Uh, I've been playing some fun stuff these past couple of weeks. For, for one, I subscribed to this little indie game collective via Patreon. They're called Sock Pop. They're the Sock Pop Collective. They're this Oh, I've heard this. Yeah, have you? They're, they're like an indie game, almost like a service, basically. I subscribed for three bucks And it's a monthly charge, and for three bucks a month, I get two indie games. And they're a team of four guys based out of the Netherlands. They their Twitter bio describes them as a like futuristic indie game boy band, which I got a kick out of. But Brockhampton, yeah, Brockham—it's like Brockhampton if they developed games. Um, (laughs) But it's it's really cool. You get like I've only been subscribed for. Two three weeks now so i've only gotten the first month's slate of games but they also have their whole backlog available to purchase on itch and steam but the kicker there is that each game is like five bucks a pop so if there is something from a past bundle that i think looks interesting i could buy it or i can subscribe for three bucks a month and get any of those games ostensibly so really cool service model I think it's, it's super cool. I would be curious to see like how many people support them and whether or not this is something that they can do as like a full-time job as a game development studio. But I think this, I don't, want, I don't want to say like this is the future of games, but I definitely see this kind of a model as an indie game distribution as being something cool. But the one game of the last month that I've been super, super into, it's called Hellblesser. It's a roguelike, sword and sorcery style, doom kind of clone. But I don't mean clone hmm. pejoratively. I just mean like the way you move feels like doom. You play, as, you play as a prince and you are trying to extinguish the fire on the moon. I, don't, I haven't beaten it, so I don't know whether that happens or not. But basically you have a sword that works with your left click and with a right click you can shoot fireballs but you only have three fireballs at a time so you have to collect more fire by holding down the right click and like absorbing fire from things that are on fire in the environment so there's this cool you move really quick like doom enemies move really quick and they're firing like slow projectiles at you the way doom works so it's like it's like doom in that sense that you're moving around really quick but you're also constantly looking around the environment, trying to find new things that are on fire to suck up. And it's hard as hell, but it's also not a true roguelike in the sense that you get the same stages for the most part when you play every time. So like there is some memorization you can get involved with, but like, it's really cool. I'm looking forward to like actually beating it. I've only made it to the second world, I guess, but I don't know how many worlds there are, but super cool, super inventive. There's also like a little YouTube documentary on their channel about how they made it. So, another thing I have mostly finished up but I'm still kind of picking up the pieces on is Umurangi Generation. I think I mentioned this when I picked it up. It is a photography, first-person photography game that was produced by a Maori game developer and Umurangi, I'm I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I look up a couple of Times to try and make sure I did means red sky like somewhat mostly in Maori and so it's I don't want to spoil the story of the game because I this is something that I highly encourage people listening who think they might be into this and like you too Tori to play this you play as a photographer you live in New Zealand like as the apocalypse is happening there's like some apocalyptic like dare i say neon genesis evangelion shit happening in the Mm -hmm. background and you are taking pictures i heard a lot of people equate it to pokemon snap when it first came out yeah but it's not on rails the way pokemon snap is like you have free roam of the environments, and Maybe maybe if I can rope you into playing this, we can talk about it more in terms of like story stuff in specific. But I oh, I say,
0: love photography games like Pokemon Snap, I, Fatal Frame.
1: Yeah, I can't recommend this enough because unlike something like Pokemon Snap where you only have control over like where Bulbasaur is in the frame, as you progress through the levels in this game, you unlock different like actual camera lenses and pieces and controls and stuff like that such that by the time you reach the end of the game, You can, like, you have five different lenses, including a telephoto lens and a fisheye lens. And then you can control the contrast and the bloom and all this, like, really cool stuff. And I I listened to a really cool podcast called Origin Story, which I'll link in the show notes, with the guy who made this game. And he was talking about how a big push of his. And, and, Tori, you and I were talking to a friend of ours about uh, Cyberpunk 2077. And a big complaint a lot of people had about Cyberpunk 2077 is that it's wearing a cyberpunk, an anti-capitalist, a leftist kind of like skin, but it is not actually performing any of that politic. I think this game is one that has that kind of a anti-imperialist politic built into it and to to hear the developer talk about the main developer it was maybe by a team of people but to hear like the brain behind this game talk about what his intent was like as the author kind of completely changed the way i looked at it there was so much push of like he would love to see people who play this game actually get involved in photography and actually like serve as serve as people who are paying attention to the world around them and even if you can't always change what's happening that you disagree with like record keeping and that kind of thing and it's it's super cool i feel like that was a really abstract way to recommend a video game but i
0: that sounds amazing i love it
1: to talk about this game's story is to kind of really spoil the way the environment tells a really cool story so take my word for it it's really cool
0: i might look into that is it available on the switch
1: it is available on the switch it's available on pc and it's available on switch yeah on switch it's really cool because it has it has a gyro controls and so yeah on pc you don't get that it's just like mouse and keyboard but on switch you can kind of like there were a couple of times where i turned my switch completely vertically so that i could take a portrait picture instead of a landscape photo so that's really cool.
0: Oh, okay. So you played this with a switch in handheld mode. Yes. Basically acting as a camera. Yeah. I wonder how it would be with docked.
1: I played it a little bit docked. And I think the, the art is really cool and the music is really cool. And playing it docked and through your TV allows you to kind of grapple with that more. But I really like playing yeah. stuff handheld because it's, like, right up in your face. It's right up in your face and you get the gyro stuff. So I think you can still use the gyro if you have, like, a, a Switch Pro controller or you're using, like, the Joy-Cons and stuff. But it felt really good to play in handheld. It felt nice to kind of, like, I guess if you're if you're emulating being a photographer, it felt nice to, like, have something in your hands, you know, that you could, like, physically move and do that kind of thing. So yeah i recommend that it's on the switch store it's 25 bucks normally i think i picked it up for like 15 when it was on sale so um last thing i got not a game but i read a book about games tori sent me for christmas a copy of video games journalist jason schreier's latest book press reset which is all about (laughs) it's all about burnout and turnover and labor issues in the video games industry I enjoy the shit out of this book. Um, Tori, you've read this, right?
0: Yeah, I... Okay, I'm really shameless, and sometimes when I buy people books for gifts, I read them first.
1: That rules, honestly. I love that.
0: So I, I did read it before sending it out to you.
1: I think anybody who is interested in, like, how the sausage is made when it comes to video game development should absolutely read this. I i've read a lot of video games journalism over the years that is very that the way they approach game development is one that approaches video games as if they are an industry wholly onto themselves completely separate from the rest of the world not unlike anything else and also that like even more so than the normal like you have to pay your dues before you get to do cool stuff like yeah sometimes the guy who's really creative and really smart is just going to treat you like an asshole and that's just normal and you have to deal with it and there are chapters of this book that really dig into people like that like there's a there's a whole chapter that talks about ken levine and bioshock and how he was kind of an asshole to his team and you you read the stories of these it kind of starts at a macro level and you're reading about these these huge names in gaming and these really big creatives who would go to a company and then get fed up and go to another company and then get fed up and start their own studio and then run out of money and it would go under. But all the while, they're hiring people and they're bringing people in. And then every time one of their creative ventures falls through, like that's... John Smith who can't pay his mortgage now and has to go find a new job or that's Jane Doe who moved to Boston from the other side of the country because she wanted to take a job at the studio so really interesting I was also pleasantly surprised I don't know if you had a similar vibe when you got to the end of it but I was a little I should have known because I'm familiar with Jason Schreier and I'm familiar with like his work but I was really pleasantly surprised when I got to the end and the like quote-unquote moral of this book was that workers need to organize and like the video game industry needs to radically change
0: yeah i wasn't like super shocked that that was the moral but it was still kind of a pleasant surprise i was like oh oh yeah hell yeah like i was just it was nice to see nice to read yeah and yeah i really do like the fact that the book put like human faces to the video game industry because we kind of think of like developers as kind of like a soulless mob of people who just crunch out video games and we're like okay well it's nice of you to make these video games we enjoy these video games um but they they show them as people who want to have kids but can't afford to have kids or um you know just people like that uh people who finally save up the down payment on their first house now the studio went under now they're gonna lose their house yeah uh, people who went to a studio thinking this time it'll be different and the culture so great and they have good health insurance for the first time and then something crazy happens and so it it gives a human face to the industry um, and I also like you were saying about how sometimes games journalists revere the games industry as an industry like no other. I like how Jason Schreier kind of debunked that. Like, it is very much like every other industry. I was actually reading a lot of parallels in it, like the games industry to the news and media industry.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Like, I can honestly say studio studio closures are to game devs what layoffs are to journalists. Um,
1: I think in in a similar vein to that, I think, I guess this is me putting my journalist hat on, I think a lot of people, at least that I've observed, get into journalism even if it's on a subconscious level because they like the proximity to power and they like they like the idea of being around the movers and shakers and being able to kind of pal around and buddy up with people and then write the story afterwards and i think for for better or for worse a lot of people get into games journalism because they really like games and like you have to you have to to get into that kind of thing but there is yeah. less of a there's less of a detached type of deal like a a legacy media news organization would tell a queer journalist that they can't report on a pride parade or something because they have too much kind of skin in the game. But a games outlet would not tell a person who grew up playing, like, Bioshock that they can't review the newest Ken Levine game.
0: Yeah, that's that's really... that's a, that's a good point. And I think... The other parallel between uh, media and games is that, like, media is rapidly unionizing, and I do think games, like, once, uh, was it Vodio or Vodio mm-hmm. games unionized? I feel like that's the first domino that fell. I think we're going to see a lot more yeah. studios unionize, Similar to how, like, I feel like it was five or so years ago or four or so years ago when I, I, saw, I, I started to see some of the first bigger news outlets unionize, like BuzzFeed and such and now everyone's doing it um so yeah definitely some really interesting parallels there and i do know he has another book he wrote a few years ago that's called uh blood sweat and pixels i have not read that but i've also heard good things about that
1: yeah i absolutely want to read that especially given that i don't know i know i know schreier will approach that kind of stuff with the right level of tact and just purely on like a i i can see that as somebody who works with this kind of thing, like he interviewed an ungodly amount of people for that book, and oh my god, oh and
0: so gran- many people. Granted,
1: there were some chapters that I kind of got a kick out of. There was a bit of a formula you could tell where it would the chapter would start off and it would be like, Glup Shitto just graduated college and he had six bucks in his pocket and he decided he was going to go to the bar and play three games of Pac Man, and then it would be like glup shadow bumped into a guy he had never seen before and that guy was todd howard and then he got a job at bethesda <laughs> but yeah but every single chapter there were new people and then like i got to the epilogue and it was just like 10 more stories and i could tell that was stuff that was like he interviewed these people and couldn't fit him in and like i know how it feels to interview somebody and then not be able to fit it into the story And so you like, you just kind of have this person's story rattling around in your head and you don't have any place that you feel you can stick it to do it justice. But highly recommend if you like video games and you want to know more about like the human cost of making some games that you like.
0: Yeah, I, we highly recommend it. Maybe we could do a book club episode on it, but. That'd be cute. It'd be super cute.
1: I think that's everything I wanted to talk about.
0: Yeah, that's everything I want to talk about. You want to do some credits? Yeah. Uh,
1: Tori, where can people find you on the internet?
0: You can find me on the Howlish Bird app at Tori underscore as underscore always.
1: You can find me on the Bird app, usually tweeting about like Florida news or just like tweeting about music at Noah underscore Hertz, H U R T S. You can find the show on Twitter at Press underscore start pod. It's where we curate fun video game memes and where we post about when the new episodes are out. If you got thoughts about the show, you can shoot us an email at heypressstart@gmail.com. I would love to hear maybe games people are looking forward to in 2022 or games people really enjoyed in 2021. Apparently you can rate podcasts on Spotify now, so uh, never thought I'd say this, but like, comment, and subscribe. And i think that's it our music is from geist you can listen to more of their music at noah geist n-o-a-h-g-e-i-s-t dot bandcamp.com our theme music is burn tap our show art is done by kai at wisp graphics I think that's a wrap games are good for you
0: a game a day keeps dr mario away <laughs> You know those memes that are like, when the edible hits, or this edible ain't shit, and then forty five minutes later, yeah. Winnie the Pooh is levitating outside of his house. I have to report that that is in fact yeah. real.
1: In Minecraft, not IRL. <laughs> for for legal purposes.
0: <laughs> for legal purposes. <laughs>